Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Guard your steps when you go into the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they are doing, that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than, you, than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow, grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, and king committed to cultivating field, to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also this also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them, and what advantage has their owner? but to see them with his eyes. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil and I have seen, that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture, and he, and he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so he shall go. And what gain is, is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and in, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy in his heart. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen and amen. It is the word of God. People are passionately worshipers. They are. And people's lives are marked by a liturgy or an order, an order of things that preserves what they love the most. You are or become what you love, says one Christian apologist, James K.A. Smith. He remarks, our wants and longings and desires are at the core of our identity, the wellspring from which our actions and behavior flow. It's true. This morning, you need to know, you will worship what you love. And we as people are always pressing forward and pressing into what we have desires 
four. As Blaise uh, Pascal uh, put it in his famous wager, you have to wager. It's not up to you. You were already committed. You can't not bet your life on something. You can't not be headed somewhere. We live, uh, we live leaning forward, bent on arriving at the place we long for. This is who we are. And yet we are people of perilous pursuits. And often our aims that we lean forward into and we love with our lives and we therefore worship lead us to dishonor the holy God of the Bible. We pursue the vanity of our heart to the destruction of our soul. And if we're not careful, these habits of love for things more than God can lead us into a place where we sit with the scoffer. You know, today's text warns us not to offer the sacrifice of fools. And that's the title of the sermon this morning, the sacrifice of fools. And if you're asking Blake, that's a cool uh, early 90s, 2000s Christian band name, the sacrifice of fools. Uh, The sacrifice of fools is to consider the wisdom of God in worship of him and then to do away with it. That's ultimately what the sacrifice of fools is. We will worship something. That's what I'm trying to tell us all this morning. And in our knowing we will worship something, we should worship God in all we do. Now, how do we do that as fallen men and women whose proclivity is to not worship God, but to feed our own devices? Well, Ecclesiastes offers wisdom and insight to help correct vain worshipers, just like me and you are. The preacher invites you to witness um, the two things that fools in their folly offer to false gods in their worship. And he also includes their counter arguments to each one, calling us to offer a right worship to God. Okay, here's the sermon today in one sentence. Man will worship something, but ultimately offer to the, uh, excuse me, man will worship something, but ultimately offered to the true God one of two things, the sacrifice of fools to his personal destruction or right fear of God to his personal redemption. I'm gonna say that again. Man will worship something, but ultimately offer to the true God one of two things, semicolon. That's why it's one sentence. Semicolons are cool. Semicolon, the sacrifice of fools to his personal destruction or right fear of God to his personal redemption. Sacrifice of fools is seen in our text. It's seen in foolish words of worship. And then it's seen in fearing words of worship. Then it's seen in foolish wealth as worship. And then it's seen as fearing wealth as worship. And those are our four points today. So first, let's talk about foolish words of worship. Point number one, the author of Ecclesiastes calls himself the preacher and his collections of sermons are just that. And they take us today toward the topic of worship, right? And a warning is sent to us with great clarity. And in verses one through six, that is seen, right? And it is this, this warning is about words. It's about foolish words and speaking foolishly. You noticed it warned you right at the beginning in verse one, the word guard is there. You know, as you heard Blake read, it said, hey, keep watch over yourself, Steady your steps, guard yourself, especially when you begin to approach the topic of God. When you approach God 
and you think you want to enter his presence, and you do so with your thoughts and your words in the place of worship, which he's referring here to being synagogue or even just a right understanding of God, in any way, realize who it is that you're moving toward. Be warned of what you're moving toward when you move toward God. Now, you need to ask the question in verse one, what is the house of God? Like, what does he have in mind here? Well, I love that this Hebrew word is used in Genesis 28. So if you know, in Genesis 28, there's this guy named Jacob. And Jacob is a child of the promise. He's a son of Abraham and Isaac. And and here is Jacob having a hard time. He lays his head down to go to sleep on this rock out in the middle of nowhere. And, And he's alone and he's scared for his life because his brother Esau is wanting to kill him. And he has a dream. And in that dream while he sleeps, he sees heaven and earth connected by a ladder and angels are ascending and descending on this ladder. And it's an affirmation to Jacob in the night of God is for you. He's not against you. And Jacob wakes up from that and he calls that place the house of God. Now notice, Jacob's not in the middle of a synagogue with a bunch of Jewish men. There isn't that yet. He's not in a church service like we are hanging out here today at Redemption. He's out in the middle of nowhere, head on a rock by himself. And yet this term is used. The reason why is, is because this term inspires us to think about God. Uh, We must make ourselves ready to receive truth from God. Our natural bent as people who who worship through foolish words um, is to be self-deceived. So much so that we are more surprised by God's presence then we are expecting to meet him. We must strive to change this by the discipline of knowing what is God's presence. And that's where the preacher starts. He says, don't offer the sacrifice of fools. Okay, if you go to the east gate of the Garden of Eden and you realize that the first time God after the fall shows up and people show up to meet him, there's a worship service that breaks out. And this guy named Cain and this brother Abel of his show up to offer God a sacrifice. The first time God's presence, again, since the fall shows up, these people bring something to God. And Cain, as the story goes in Genesis 4, brings to God something very low on the standard of God's holiness. He brings vegetables to God. Versus his brother Abel, who brings the firstborn of his flock, a pure lamb sacrificed and brought to God. And God looks at these two offerings and he says, one is the sacrifice of fools and the other one is accepted by me. Cain's offering of his own produce, things that he had control over, that he gave life to, that he thought was good enough on his own presumption are spoken of by God as being worthless. Worthless, and not only that, entertaining the sin in his heart that would destroy him. The sacrifice of fools standing before God is, don't bring me vegetables, Cain. Bring me what Abel has brought me by faith. I gave life to the lamb. He was willing to take it in an understanding that I could take his life in a moment. This is what I bless. Now, here's the thing. You think this doesn't matter, but friend, if we don't get the sacrifice of of right worship right, then we will offer the sacrifice of fools and possibly later offer the bloody sacrifice of murdering your brother in the field because that's what happens. Cain leaves that place unable to realize how he should have guarded his steps, how he should have been quicker to draw near and listen to what God has said, verse one, rather than reject it. And it leads him in the field, standing in a pool of his own brother's blood. This warning states that fools don't know what they're doing. 
But it's not speaking of their innocence at all. They are guilty for what they do for sure. You know, verse two makes that very clear. If the goal of a devoted believer is to draw near and to listen to God, to figure out how to speak, well, then these warnings show that the the fool offers a rash mouth, right? Like he's quick and hasty. He, He wants to deal with opinion about God before he wants to deal with God. He wants presumption over promise. And he shows up, and scripture warns here, hey, don't be rash when you think about how you speak to God. We get hasty by acting with too much speed and urgency, rushing things that shouldn't be rushed. And this is foolish. And inevitably, we speak with our mouths. But the preacher shows up here and says, hey, your mouth is connected to something. You see, it's connected to your heart. Our heart and tongue are connected to our Motives. Jesus even mentions this explicitly. By the time we get to the New Testament, the Pharisees have called the works of God that Jesus is doing. If you don't know, Jesus was a miracle worker, right? And they call the miracles and the teachings of Jesus and the authority behind it. They, the, the religious leaders say, it's demonic. He's casting out evil spirits by an evil spirit. And they go directly against God. They offer harsh, vain words to Jesus. So Jesus offers back to them these words in Matthew 12. He says, you brood of vipers. In other words, you house of snakes. (laughs) How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, make note of this, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, Jesus says, on the day of judgment, people will give account. For every careless word they speak, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. There is a severe judgment in our text in Ecclesiastes that matches the text of Jesus' words there in Matthew 12. And it tells us that God is in heaven and we are on earth. Did you see that in the book? So after he says, be be careful how you speak, here's why. You know why? Verse 2, God is in heaven. And you are on earth. In other words, we must know our place. We must recognize the distance that is very important to the preacher in Ecclesiastes. This distance gets directly linked to the holiness of God. We must live in light of who God is all the time, lest we offer hasty sacrifice of fools. That's the idea. You know, one of my favorite uh, artists, I'll quote him twice today, I'm sorry, but I've been listening to him. This usually happens. But Beautiful Eulogy is a hip-hop Christian uh, band, uh, wonderful guys. They wrote a song, and in it, they talk about God, and they're talking to God. And they say this, they say, there's a space between us, and it's a right divide. It's the distance between the depths of your worthiness, God, and mine. They say, mine is derivative. All of my works come from thine. I am merely a man. All your works, divine. And like that song is saying, there's a right divide between God's holiness and his transcendence, and then rightly, us. And if that's the case, we must know our place. We don't have a right to say to God in worship, away from God, in our homes, uh, for God, before the lost world. We have no right to say more than what God would want us to say. To offer anything else is to forget that distance that is very important 
And so we must therefore let our words be few. We need to embrace the idea of lucid brevity. Lucid, something is expressed clearly. It's easy to understand. Also brevity, it's concise and exact. And we must fight for the holy heart language that can mark us as people of God. That's what the Ecclesiastes preacher is after. He wants us to understand that the sacrifice of fools is to go on and on about things. Look at verse three. You know why? Because a dream comes to him and it comes with much busyness. You know what the fool's voice is like? It's wasted words. He says a lot, but he really says nothing. He offers a lot that seems like wisdom, but you find it doesn't help. Someone who is restless with stress, who is undergoing a lot of labor, who's very busy, they're liable to have more dreams than people who get good, sound sleep. There's a principle here in verse three. You know, the person who's worried about life, who always uh, is worried about what they'll say next and decides to waste words, they get this manifestation in their life that robs them from any true rest. They get dreams. They get distractions. They're harassed. And these things are not to be pursued as some secret knowledge. You know, some people in the name of wisdom say that dreams could always be a source of secret knowledge. But that's not wise because oftentimes we lack the good rest that we need to have any good dream revealed to us by God. More times than not, our dreams prove and point to our restlessness. This idea is compared directly after that to the way a fool runs his mouth with many words. Talking out of your limits makes you something. And usually it makes you a liar. If talking without limits produces anything, it makes you a liar. Look at verses four and five as he continues giving us wisdom about foolish words. He says, when you vow a vow to God, don't delay paying it. And then he teaches on that idea. This idea is, your words could overextend you. You could overextend yourself with many words or many thoughts or many desires. And it's very easy to do. It's almost always a result um, that when someone begins to claim more credit than they can actually cash, that lies begin to come. Lies accompany cover-ups, this overstep. But when do they end? Well, the truth is they will eventually end when the person is finally exposed and caught. Notice the transactional language that's used in verses four and five. Um, even though what we will often vow to God is based on our actions, not our money, the language he wants to use makes it clear and concise as being like a money transaction. And that's intentional. You, you can't talk about paying someone all day if you're running a Ponzi scheme. I mean, you can and you can say, give me this money. I'll take it from you. I'm going to ensure you're going to get double profits, buddy, before the, the night's over. I'm go you're going to see it. So just invest here, and then you're going to have all you want. Well, you can't do that and put double profits into someone's hand through lying. Eventually, collapse will happen. Every Ponzi scheme in history, even the biggest ones, will always collapse on themselves. And usually the fall is nothing small. It's usually great and spectacular. That's because God does not take pleasure in such foolishness. I mean, it's as cold cut for him as the bank repo man. You know what happens when you have promised to pay something to the bank and you don't? They don't just, I mean, they'll send you a lot of letters, 
But you don't get a guy showing up at your door, nice and happy and kind, saying, hey, it's been a while, but, you know, we just want to talk about your boat. You know, I know you love it. And we think it's really cool too, but like, you know, you just haven't paid on it in like six months. So you think maybe you could like, you know, pay us for it? Now, when the bank comes to you, it's, it's in the night. It's with the, if you've got the boat chained up, it's with bolt cutters to cut it off and to put it on their hitch because the repo man is taking it. It is no longer yours. No matter what you would say about it, come time for repossession, it's taken back. The bank will rightly have what is its. This is what God warns the sacrificing full of dreams and many words to think about, okay? To pursue God in this venture of my words are my worth is to basically bank on eventually being exposed as a fraud. And that exposure will be grandiose. It will be heartbreaking. One of the most shocking realities of the sinful worshiping fool is how pervasive the sin is right up until the point that they are caught. And the last verse of warning assures us they will be caught. Look at verse six. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Rhetorical question. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Brother, sister, hear me. This verse assumes that we will be caught before God in this life and that, will not get, that we will not get away with misguided speech. The damage has already been done and your mouth has already made you a sinner. That's the idea here. It's made you a liar. This is what hasty speech and false vowing does. This is now taking it a step further. You notice there's a word used, messenger, right? You see that? This type of realization happens before the messenger. Now, who could that be? Well, I love this and you need to study this word with me this morning. The word messenger here is malak. It's a Hebrew word. It's used as a messenger of God. And it's used the same way that an angel of God would be spoken of or a priest of God or the prophets of God. So we need to think about someone being confronted. So think about somebody being confronted by a pastor today and maybe in the counseling room, possibly at a moment of intervention where they've been blinded by the false worship of the sacrifice of fools they've been offering. You could think about, you know, a mother or a father who's speaking the truth for God in, in, in opposition to the lie or cover-up that their child is trying to do, and possibly uh, just the Word of God directly preached like I'm doing now, or the Word of God read to someone. It can work in this way. And God has set up a witness. The point is this, stop being deceived. If you're deceived, wake up. God asks, would you lie to your maker? Would you lie to the one who sends these messengers to you? In this instance, the mouth, which is connected to the heart, would dig a deeper hole, would make the person a total sinner is the idea here. And the failure doesn't become more serious to God. It was already serious to him. It just finally becomes clear to us, hopefully. This is the idea. He asks that question, and I like how the NET renders it. It says, why make God angry at you so that he would destroy the work of your hands? You see, when you hear it that way, why? Like, why make God angry at you? The answer is implied that you shouldn't make God angry by doing this at all. And he will, in fact, destroy the work of your hands. You could toil under the false uh, pretext of, of being God's and offering him these words, and God is able to destroy the work of your hands. And he will when it doesn't honor him. 
He's absolutely able to. So what benefit have we created for ourselves when we misspeak, when we lie to deceive others, when we lie before God? What do we feel is at stake if we were to come clean before God? I mean, I want you to really think about your life this morning. Is there something that if it came out, it'd be an embarrassment? It'd be an embarrassment to you? Maybe your pride would be wounded? Maybe it would result in you losing a loss of power or influence, the respect of others, maybe the respect of your loved ones. Maybe it's some monetary gain that you would lose, possibly the the popularity among friends. Could you lose your sense of self-worth and purpose? You know, foolish words and lies can cover up entire identities of sinful individuals for years. That's what the Ecclesiastes preacher is saying. The fool is slow to part with that. But the question is, can God destroy these things? The answer is yes. So more to the point, what is mentioned here is the judgment of the most pure and holy and righteous judge of all the earth. That's the one who is angry in verse 6. It's serious. To frame it in for you, the opposite of this question is what we've been singing this morning. Psalm 90, 17. It says, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands, Psalm 90, 17. God is, in fact, promising the exact opposite of that in the above scripture there you see in verse 6. We are to be warned. We will lose his favor, gain his anger instead if we pursue him like this and offer the sacrifice of fools. So how do we guard our steps before God? How do we silence our haughty lips How do you slow your words before God? How do you know your place constantly before him? How do you recover from sleepless nights and many dreams? How do you shut up those lies and continue failures to keep your own promises in your head? How do you stop lying before the truth and habits of sinful behavior? Can we change or are we just doomed like the preacher preaches here? How do we stop the foolish words of worship? Well, that's our second point, albeit the most shortest one. Look in verse 7. Instead of offering the fearful, or excuse me, instead of offering the, the um, foolish words of worship, we got to offer fearful words of worship. Look at verse 7. It says, when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. Employed for our understanding is the word vanity again. And this time, right, it's clearer than ever before. We're guilty before God. We're guilty of our many thoughts, dreams, and words, both private and public. They eventually crumble before him. Rightly understanding who God is and the limit that puts on you um, understanding something or controlling an outcome is the safest, most biblical way to handle issues, okay? It's not easy to trust and fear God above everything else you believe or want to believe, but it is the wisest venture. For all authority is his, and he is serious about his own glory and will. You must fear God more than men. You must fear God more than your circumstances. You have to fear God above your potential losses. You have to fear God in your own plans. Job 28 says, And to man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. 
Listen again, Proverbs 14, 7 says, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, the one, that one may avoid the snares of death. And then finally, one of the clearest examples of how this is good counsel, it's not a contradiction, is the words of Moses to God's people. Get the context here. God's people were in bondage. They were slaves in Egypt. God personally delivers them. He now gives them 10 commandments to follow him and obey him. Speaking straight to their deception, the Lord says this through Moses. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid for God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. So fearing God is not being scared of him. Fearing God is not being scared of him. It is letting his holiness remain with you so you may turn from sin. Let me say that again. Fear of God is not being scared of him. It's letting his holiness remain with you so you may turn from sin. That's an amazing thing, right? That's a thing of wonder. Sounds easy, right? Don't be fooled. It's not easy, guys. It's not easy to always have the fear and the presence of God with you. You see, those men and women in Exodus 20 heard that statement, backed away from the mountain and said, your presence is enough over here. And yet only days later in chapters 32, we're committing great grievous sin against God around a golden calf. That's who me and you are. Okay, And the presence of God and his holiness, which we need to be able to turn from sin and keep our words pure before him, fear, we don't have on our own. You see, fear of God is the beginning, but it leaves us unfinished in our connection with sin. So God in his mercy has sent the finisher of sin, his son, Jesus Christ. Think about this. Christ lives according to the fear of God perfectly. He speaks according to it. He acts according to it. He do, and then he doesn't perish under the weight of sin like you and I do. He perishes under the weight of sin for you and I. You see, Jesus faces the punishment of a restless dreamer in death. He finishes that anxiety once and for all. God raises him from the grave to show us that the fear of God can truly be ours. Closing on this second point, there's a story in Mark 5 where Jesus is confronted by a man. Okay, this man is a ruler in the synagogue. He's pursuing wisdom. This man wants to use his words. His name's Jairus. He wants to use his words to please God with his whole life. He works in that capacity. And yet he throws himself at Jesus's feet because his daughter becomes ill. She's dying. And he comes to Jesus and says, Rabbi, please save her. Will you heal her? Jesus says yes. And on his way to her, some servants from Jairus's house bring the horrible news. They meet Jesus and Jairus on the road and they say, your daughter is dead. Why trouble Jesus anymore? Why trouble the master anymore? You know what Jairus does? He turns to Jesus, and in verse 36, or excuse me, in verse 36, it says that Jesus overhearing what they said. So before, it's not him turning. I'm sorry, I misspoke there. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, to Jairus, he said this, do not fear, only believe, only believe. And then he goes and he raises his dead daughter back to life, to everyone's amazement. Here's the idea, friend. Jesus feared God perfectly so that you who never fears God rightly could get what only fearing God can get you. He can restore us in that same way. 
We are not to fear when we trust in Jesus. We are to believe. Our belief will land us in a place where we can offer, offer to God the right fearful words of worship. We will fear God in Christ. And so he can restore us to give us the words of worship that we need. Have you trusted him today? Have you trusted him today? Thirdly, we see in their text, foolish wealth as worship. Point number three, our foolish words are not the only warning the preacher gives us. In fact, much, of, much more ink is spilt in these next warnings over one specific trap in our life. In verse 10, uh, the preacher warns against the vanity of pursuing money and wealth and riches. Now, in those verses, uh, these verses here, he shows us six ways that riches are wealth and, uh, and our, uh, our riches and our wealth are a vanity and they're destructive to us. Now, before we see those six ways, I want you to look at verse 10. Look at verse 10 in the text. It's a thesis about this warning. It says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Here we begin again to see a list of things uh, that, that money and wealth produce for and in foolish people. The problem isn't money. The problem is he who loves money. So in this way, the New Testament comes to mind, right? Again, the words of Paul writing to Timothy. Paul writes to Timothy and says, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And it's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and they've pierced themselves with many pangs. It's a simple concept, right? Getting more money will just leave you wanting more and more. You'll never find satisfaction in riches. They will let you down. They'll let you down big time. Yet your love for them, as you love it, will increase your hatred in so many other areas. When it comes to wealth, resentment and regret are often the friends of those who are wealthy. So heed the warnings this morning of the love of money. There's six the preacher gives. Let's see them quickly. The first he says is that the love of money, so foolish wealth as worship. The first is the love of money causes corruption. Look in verses eight and nine. He says, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, don't be amazed at the matter because the high official is watched by a higher and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king that's committed to cultivated fields. Friends, listen, we want answers to why injustice happens so often. We want to know why the poor are mistreated. And our ambition is to simplify the solutions. We say things like, let's just end world hunger, and we think it will be okay. But there's more to that. The solution proves it's never simple to end the violations of our world. The preacher wants us to see um, and to understand the love of money, the love of power and wealth and influence. It's corrupting. It has a corrupting effect. It corrupts those who would distribute to the poor and the oppressed, and it corrupts the poor and the oppressed. The poor uh, themselves are possessed with the desire to not be poor at all costs. So verse 9 should be studied closely because it's almost impossible to translate, and there's various ways. It can be taken good or bad. Look at verse 9. If it's good, then it says the ESV has it in your ESV Bible there. It says the ki a king who can kill this desire for greed will actually be a blessing to people as he cultivates fields and feeds everyone. But there's a, another way that this can be translated and the CSB chooses to translate it that way in saying the profit uh, from land is taken by all and the king is served by the field 
as well. In other words, everyone can be corrupted by the influence of money. Money has powerful influence in corruption. Secondly, he, the preacher observes this in verse 11. The love of money brings moochers. The love of wealth and money brings uh, moochers. Verse 11 says, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Another negative reality about being wealthy and increasing one's wealth is that you end up increasing those who mooch off of you. People come out of the woodworks when people strike it rich. Uh, you know, your long lost cousin Arnie doesn't stay off the grid anymore. He shows up. Before you know it, he's your best friend. You were always his favorite cousin. Your friends increase proportionally with wealth if you, if you don't guard against this. Some people boast in such an entourage. I think of documentaries that show famous athletes who reach this place of fandom. They, they so notoriously go to nightclubs with entire groups behind them, sometimes 30 or 40 people. Drinks are on them, goods on them, thousands of dollars on tabs. But you know what happens, the preacher says? He says, before long, though, you're going to realize the only thing you get out of this relationship to them is just to watch them enjoy everything that you give them. Eventually, the new wears off, the old shines through, and you find yourself bored of the same thrills that you were offered a month ago with your wealth, but these new friends who love it, their enjoyment for you becomes a vanity. A mooch is not a real friend either. The moment that your money is threatened or it's lost, guess where they're going to be? At your side? No, certainly not. They've moved on to the next wealthy fool who lives his life of worship on the pretension that if I could just get enough and then just live it, it'll be enough. It's not true. Preacher warns against the love of money, number three, saying it causes anxiety and restlessness. Listen to this. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Another warning for you to avoid the love of money and wealth. When you break the bank, you break with self-control. Your indulgences get so lavish, your stomach's so full on feasting, you can't sleep due to indigestion. And worse than that, worrying about your money, where you're gonna get some next. Wealthy people are distracted by destructive things very easily. The preacher is saying, be warned of loving riches because this distraction can become so consuming that you'll let your anxiety and sleeplessness push you further into lacking more self-control. Let me give you a vulgar example of this. In the imagination of Suzanne Collins, she's the author of The Hunger Games, uh, she captures the foolish, full stomach of the rich so well in a very disgusting way. In that book, the, the, the tributes go to fight in the capital city, and the Hunger Games trilogy shows that in the capital, they live such decadent and full-bellied lives that they eat at these parties until their stomachs were so full they can't eat another bite. But thankfully, they crafted a special drink that makes them, when they drink it, vomit and retch up all that they have eaten so that they can create space in their bellies to go and enjoy more. It's wickedness, right? I mean, this is the determination of the rich whose God is their belly, and they will not find rest. The sweet sleep, the preacher says, that's reserved for the faithful laborer, the, the one who understands work as worship, work as worship. And whether he eats well and is satisfied or he's regularly malnourished, he knows 
that he has worshiped his God. He stood before God and done what has been enough. He doesn't feast like the rich and therefore he can't sleep good. He falls into sleep immediately. And you know what sleep is for him? It's the medicine by which God's created it to be. Meanwhile, anxiety and restlessness plague the lover of money. Fourthly, the love of money brings hurt from greed. Verse 13 and 14a, it says, there's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by this, their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. Let me tell you the story of Stephen Thomas. You may have heard of him. He's a San Francisco man who uh, works in, in various different digital uh, areas. And years ago, 10 years ago, um, he had created a, a video for the company Ripple explaining to people the value of Bitcoin. Bitcoin is digital uh, money. It's new at this time. And they, of course, pay Mr. Stephen Thomas in Bitcoin. 10 years ago, they paid him 7,002 Bitcoin. He received it as payment for the commercial that he had made promoting Bitcoin. As of this week, as I did the math on the current price of Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin, one Bitcoin is about $43,000. And so to this day, this 7,002 Bitcoin that Mr. Thomas has is $337 million. But here's the problem. Bitcoin is a company that criminals love because it's designed to where you can, your money is safe and the only way to access it is with your password. But Stefan has forgotten his password. He's locked it in three places. Two of them burned up in a fire. The third one, an iron key, digital little flash drive that you could buy for $128 on Amazon right now. But iron key is military grade, unhackable technology. And whatever information you put on it, you better have the password to it. You only get 10 attempts. And after the 10th attempt of trying to get into the iron key, digital flash drive, it will destroy itself in such a way that hackers need 50,000 years and 200 computers to try to get to it. It's gone. Stefan today, to, to this day, has used eight of his 10 passwords. He can't remember the password to his iron key, so he cannot get his Bitcoin. And therefore, $337 million sits out there for his grasp, and he can't get it. It's ruining his life. He told the New York Times, I would just lay in bed and think about it. And then I would run to go to the computer with some new strategy and it wouldn't work. And I would be desperate again. That desperate nature is the grievous evil of riches being kept to an owner's hurt. It's exemplified very clear in Stefan's story. Having them is not really having them at all for him. He can't get them. So he feels the ache of it before he even gets there. But the preacher is saying so many face a situation where the love of money drove them to work, work, work as hard as they could, only to lose everything in stock market crashes or bad investments, failed business plans. The preacher sees the potential for risk being serious enough of a problem to a person's health. He calls it grievous evil. In other words, pure evil. The drive and love for money as worship to God, as something that you need is pure idolatry. Such idolatry will always come at a cost. And that, that cost is the next warning. Look at verse, uh, verses 14 and 15, their conclusion. Here's number five. The love of money brings hurt to future generations. The text continues. This person who's, you know, doesn't have, who has this debt, he's a father of a son. He has nothing, but he has nothing in his hand. As, as his son came, right? As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall have nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. 
The cost here is the pain of leaving nothing to your child. You tried to give them the world financially, but loss will show how foolish the venture was even clearer. You didn't give them your time, maybe, or the truth, which was likely and is more valuable, in hopes of giving them material blessing. Think of the father or the mother who pursued the job above pursuing the relationship with their child, only to squander the wealth that they hoped to establish and lose the relationship with the child. A double portion of pain. Now they're not just poor, they're poor in spirit. The child is as poor and helpless as they came into the world, and they will be. And the once rich man has that to endure. What he looked on as he loved so much his wealth, hoping it would give his family something, never loved him back. And that's the idea. Do not love money. It will not love you back. It will be to, for you death. It will bring destruction, which is number six. The love of money separates us from the reality in the most evil way. The rest of it, verses 16 and 17, the preacher says, this is also grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what, and what, uh, go, uh, what going um, is there to him, or excuse me, what good is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Someone like Thomas, Stephen Thomas, I told you about, who's lost so much, faces depression, vexing thoughts, and a sickness or anger that controls them. I mean, the hope of the lie of riches is that you will never lose hope. I mean, you just keep adding money to the slot machine of life because there's a little bit of hope that each purchase is not a total waste. Enough winnings, enough money could get returned to convince you that you're not losing that much until it's all gone. So just like a chronic gambler, just less obvious, a person hoping that each paycheck or each increase in the account or get the balance budgeted rightly, a trip uh, that we buy with it or securing some amount of some way to put your absolute trust in it over God will find this list as their final thoughts. If not immediately, then eventually. You will feel darkness. You will know vexing thoughts. You'll be sick. And anger awaits us. So if we all face these days in our pursuit of riches, how do we work and gain in a way that is substantial and not like chasing wind? Well, that's our final point this morning, fearing wealth as worship. Fearing wealth as worship. Look at verse 18. It says, behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with, with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Do you hear how much that opens up a new way? It opens up the way. You see, rather than tell us how to make a switch from the love of money to the love of God, the preacher instead tells us that uh, those who love God more than money, they do, they do uh, with the things they have, the wealth they possess, um, they do things to bring glory to God. I mean, he skips, he skips the... Uh, the the, the way to just get straight to the action. In other words, in the actions of this person, um, their acknowledgement about who God is, that distance we talked about, it's been closed for them because they're with God, they're able to enjoy him. Again, Beautiful Eulogy helps me so much with this. In one of their albums, one of their songs, they string together these lyrics. They say about desire, they say, whatever it is that gives that feeling that we can't live without, the joys we try to get that only God can give, we highly doubt. 
what allures and arouses the heart, we can't figure out. But it's the quickest way to account for what we prize and are most proud about. Only God can give us joy and the joys we try to get out of wealth. And God has given those joys to us. It's him. When you enjoy drink and eat and enjoyment to him, when you do it to the glory of God, you're beginning, the preacher says, to get the right understanding. You don't stop doing those things like the monk who cloisters alone and wants to take away all the aesthetics of his life. No, instead, if you get this rightly, you will get these things and it will be for you joy. But let's remember this. The preacher does fall short. You see, only God can give the joys that we try to get out of wealth. And God has given us those joys, yet we can't enjoy them. And so God must do something. He must give something else for us to then enjoy it. And this is where the gospel comes into play. The truth is, is that God gave, wrapped in swaddling clothes, a life of humility and service and a grievous death in our place and a glorious resurrection and a beautiful future by faith in heaven in his son, Jesus Christ. And when what we prize and what we are most proud about becomes Jesus, we begin to act under his lordship. We find ourselves drinking from the fountain of joy. Just as Jesus said in Matthew 6, he said, don't be anxious saying what you will eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? Lost people, the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly father, he knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God that he preached, that he lived. Seek Jesus and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Or in Matthew 10 where Jesus says, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Does your heart hear these words of Christ this morning and leap with joy? When Jesus says, all will be added to you, or, or you will have life abundantly, if you believe that, then don't ignore the truth here from the preacher, because the truth of the preacher leads us to the purest understanding of that being true in your life. Paul explains it like this, the kingdom of heaven is not what we eat and drink and have. That's not what heaven's about. In Romans 14, 17, he says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. It's a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Our eating, our drinking, our enjoyment and work, they matter now. But hear me, they're parabolic. They're a parable. They're good teachers, but they're to teach us and remind us of the absolute joy that we will have in Christ one day forever and the re real joy that he gives us now. In other words, so that we don't pursue like the rich man. So if we lose everything and that flash drive for us is locked up and destroyed forever, we don't despair because they may take away our riches, but they cannot take away our joy. This is the preacher's message of fearing wealth as worship. It doesn't say have nothing. It actually says have everything with the right lens. Look how he finishes in verse 19 and 20. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and God has given possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Again, this principle of joy is repeated. I hope you hear it this morning. The foolish person would pursue wealth like an alcoholic pursues drunkenness as a way of living. 
and they would black out under the anxiety of having everything and yet nothing. Remember, darkness, vexation, sickness, and anger. Pursue wealth, pursue unwise approaches in your words to God. This is what you get. However, the one who fears God, who knows Christ, they walk with their Lord as the king of wealth, and the power is given to them to enjoy it all. And I mean really enjoy it. In other words, they're drunk on God. Their joy is a blackout joy that leaves them with the only thing that matters. All their memory can fade away. And one thing remains. It's this. The Lord is enough. The Lord is my portion. In him, I lie down in green pastures. I pass through death's valley unharmed. I sip the sweetest wine in the greatest moments of my life, and I taste the bitterest herbs in the lowest that life can hand me, and I smile with the satisfaction of knowing him. He knows me, and they have joy. You get Christ, and the joy of Christ is the most lasting impression on your heart, not the actual events. Think about it like this. It's a blackout drunk idea in the complete, complete reverse. You see, when you're blackout drunk, you remember where you started, but you never remember where you ended. But in Christ and what the preacher offers as enjoying this life, in light of your death, in light of eternity, in light of what God can do in your heart right now through Christ, with the joy of God, it's blackout joy. You don't remember where you started perfectly or what you did, but you finish with the most soberness you could ever have. It's the exact opposite. And that joy cannot be taken from you. That is so powerful. This is the assurance that we need to live for true riches. Let me ask you this morning. If you possess this true joy, do you cultivate it? Do you cultivate it by fearing God? We said check your mouth this morning. We said check your wallet this morning. Because those who have been infected and affected by this truth of the gospel will find joy, joy unending. So brothers and sisters, I call you this morning to pray with me, and then we're going to respond in song and in prayer. But my challenge to you is let the fullness of knowing God and fearing God, let it lead you away, away from the sacrifice of fools, and let it lead us into the joy that God has set before us. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the hope and the reality of your resurrected and your promise of eternity and the life we have in Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that you will help us. God, I pray that you will help us to know the joy that was set before you as you endured the cross for us and that now we can, with the joy set before us, follow you. I pray, Lord, that you would protect us from the unwise words of the fool, that you would help protect us, guard our hearts and mouths as we live, as we worship you in spirit and truth, and as we leave from here and we speak before outsiders, God. God, we pray for your wisdom. We pray for a fear of you. And Lord, we also pray in our understanding of wealth and material things. God, our hearts are idle factories and they bind themselves to what we can produce and buy and have. And we pray, God, that in light of death and in light of what you're doing, that you would give us, God, instead a full joy and satisfaction in you so that we can rightly enjoy these great good things you've given us things like music and song and dance, God, and food and friends and all the good gifts of your, of your world. 
We thank you, God, that in Jesus we find the answer and we find the right teaching. So help us focus our hearts on him as we sing and respond. We ask it in his name. Amen.